So this is, uh, this is such a wonderful theme, uh, gratitude. It, it is, uh, I think, both convicting and refreshing to think about. It feels like I need it. It feels like we need it. You know, I, I, uh, I saw the ferrymen's getting out of their car this morning when I was coming in, and I, I saw Judy. I thought she needed it. I said to her, I said, Judy, looks like you woke up grumpy this morning, you know. <laughs> And she said, yeah, I usually let him sleep, but we had to get here. So, it's good. Well, if you would open up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're just going to look at two verses there at the beginning of the chapter. Verses 3 and 4. 2 Thessalonians, verse 3 and 4. Paul writes this. We ought always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and your faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Lord God, we ask that you would be here now. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might receive your word and be shaped and our hearts might overflow with gratitude. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So a few weeks back, we celebrated Easter, and as a church, we had an Easter egg hunt here at the church. And at an Easter egg hunt, you don't find eggs unless you look for them. You have to go on the hunt. And I remember as a teenager, there was one Easter that we celebrated at my Aunt Frances's house. Now, my brother and my cousins and I, we were all kind of too old at that point. We were, we were teens. But the adults wanted to do an Easter egg hunt. And so they hid eggs all over the front yard. And they motivated us by letting us know that one of the eggs had a $100 bill in it. So we were motivated for the hunt. We ran around that front yard. We looked under every bush. We looked in every hole in the tree. We turned over every rock. We, we gathered up our eggs. And then when we opened them up, providence shined on me. And inside one of my eggs was a new crisp invoice from a local vendor. I think it was a sales slip for a tire repair in the amount of $100. I had found the $100 bill. And the adults had a big laugh over it. But the point was, they sure had motivated us for the hunt. They had given us a good reason to go looking. And 
Paul is saying that the same thing holds true when it comes to fostering gratitude for the church. We need to be motivated for the hunt. We need to be on the lookout for reasons to give thanks to God for his grace at work in the church. And the Bible doesn't make any empty promises. So when we are motivated for this hunt, we will be rewarded. But we need to be motivated for that hunt. Now, I think and it has been my experience as one of your pastors, that gratitude is a strength in this church. Uh, And it is a strength in you all as leaders in this church. And I am so grateful for that. At the same time, we are all susceptible, aren't we? We are all susceptible. Too often we're not grateful for the church. As Paul is writing this, we can we can realize we're not maybe always grateful for the church. We may not even be aware that we have neglected giving thanks to God for others. Or we might not be paying attention to how those around us are growing in their faith. We may not be paying attention to the love that others demonstrate toward one another. We can become self-focused and forget to be Grateful for the people that God has put in the church with us. Or we can be prone to complain. We might complain to God or we might find others who are willing to listen to us complain about our brothers and sisters in the church. We see each other's faults. We point out their flaws. We reflect on their weaknesses. We become critical and hardened. Our faith is stunted by this, and our hope is drained. And so Paul is calling us, reminding us through his example and through the explanation that there is a better way. There is an approach that we ought to take that is right, to always give thanks to God for our brothers and sisters in Christ, to recognize where God is sustaining and strengthening faith in the midst of trouble and hardship, to see love for one another increasing and to see God's grace is at work in the lives of those around us and in our own lives to the glory of God. And so from this passage, we will see that when we purpose to be grateful for the church, we will always find God-exalting, gospel-initiated, grace-empowered reasons to give thanks. When we purpose to be grateful for the church, we will always find God-exalting, gospel-initiated, grace-empowered reasons to give thanks. So, so this message is, is maybe more of a how-to foster gratitude for the church than what to thank God for in the church But when we purpose to be grateful for the church, we'll always find God-exalting, gospel-initiated, and grace-empowered reasons to give thanks. So there are six distinct aspects of what Paul says here in his prayer of gratitude for the church. And the first is that gratitude for the church is our duty. Gratitude for the church is our duty. We can begin by asking, why should we give thanks? Well, Paul tells us, We ought always to give thanks to you, brothers, as is right. He's making a moral imperative 
that we are to be receiving here. Why should we give thanks? Because it's the right thing to do. It's, it's obedience to God to give thanks. It's something that ought to be done. We, we actually owe it. We are under obligation. The King James Version says that we are bound to thank God. Being grateful and being grateful for the church is a characteristic of being a Christian. Now, some of you may have grown up, like I did, using the, the common book of prayer. And in the communion service, it begins with a, a little responsive reading that uses this language of being bound to the duty of being grateful. And even though I'm now a nonconformist, I mean, I guess when I was growing up, I was a nonconformist too, just different nonconformists. But um, <laughs> I thought it'd be good for us to all read this because it is full of theological uh, significance and weight. So th- there's this little responsive reading. I'm going to put it up on the, on the screen. You, you'll probably, many of you know it by heart, but let's just read this together. The Lord be with you. And with Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks unto the, our Lord God. It is very meet and right and our bounden duty that we should at all times and in all places give thanks unto thee, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty, everlasting God. Do you see there the, the, the duty that we are bound to. Do you think about gratitude for the church that way? That when I'm not giving thanks, it's not because there's nothing to give thanks for. It's because I'm in the wrong. Something is wrong. I've forgotten God or his grace. I've become maybe embittered or blind to his grace, maybe angered or, or even vengeful toward others. Whatever it is, let us turn back to obedience and recognize that we have an obligation to go on the hunt and look for reasons to be thankful. Brothers and sisters, our affections for the church and our gratitude to God will be proportionate to how much we feel we ought to be thankful. And that brings us to our second aspect. Gratitude for the church is Godward. Gratitude for the church is Godward. Who ought we to give thanks to? Last night the message was on give thanks for God, but we are to give thanks to God. Now that might seem obvious, but there's an important principle when Paul says we ought to give thanks to God for you. Paul's not expressing gratitude to the church, but to God for his grace at work in the church. God is the recipient of our gratitude, and so it's God who is glorified in our gratitude. Our gratitude for the church becomes an act of worship. Even as James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Gratitude is an act of acknowledging God as the creator, as the sustainer, as the savior, as the provider of everything. And so he receives the glory. David Powell simply says this, God, not his gifts, is the primary focus of Pauline thanksgiving. He's looking at all of Paul's expressions of gratitude, 
And he just says, Paul is focused on thanking God and not his gifts. And that should be the primary focus of our thanksgiving. That's where Romans 1 says the world gets this wrong. Romans 1.21 says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And our foolish hearts are prone the same way to be darkened if we miss this gratitude. May we make God the primary focus. When we gather as a church and look around and see all that he's given us, even just the material things like this building, to gather together for worship on a Sunday morning or to have bridge outreach here every week or to have a leader's retreat on a weekend or the brothers and sisters who are the church who serve us and care for us and strengthen us. The focus of our thanksgiving is not on the gift but on God and he receives the glory for his abundant generosity. In the church we see his work in others' lives. The third aspect is gratitude for the church is others-oriented. We see his work in others' lives. Gratitude for the church is others-oriented. Who ought we to give thanks for? Well, Paul is giving thanks for the people in the church there in Thessalonica. For the brothers and sisters, the people who make up the body of Christ there, those in the community, in that local church... Yes, he sees that it's his duty to be giving God thanks for these people, but he's also living out Psalm 16.3 where it says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Paul loves this church. His duty to give thanks is driven by his delight in the saints of this church. He loves the people of this church. Thessalonica, I guess, or Thessalonica, for those who just uh, coronated a new king this morning, um, was the capital of Roman Macedonia. And Paul had traveled there on his second missionary journey and planted this church. He was then forced to leave the city because of Jewish opponents. But his heart was still with that church. He delighted in them. He sent Timothy to be with them and care for them. First Thessalonians was likely one of Paul's first letters, his earliest letters to encourage the church that we have. And in both first and second Thessalonians, as he wrote to them, he's expressing his affection for them. In 1 Thessalonians 1-2, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. He goes on in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians to say that he was affectionately desirous to be with them, sharing both the gospel and his very life with them, that he had encouraged them the way a father does his children. He says he longs to see them again. He calls them his hope and his joy And his crown of boasting. His delight overflows in gratitude to God for them. In both 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians 2.13. He says, we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God. 
But we ought always give thanks to God for you, brothers, by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. We are to delight in the saints. When we talk about gratitude for the church, this is what we mean, delighting in one another. Gratitude that we are brought together by Jesus, that we are on mission together to spread the gospel, that we share not only the gospel, but our very lives with one another. If we want to foster gratitude and express gratitude for the church, we need to orient toward those around us. When our tendency is to go inward, to be aware of our own selves, the the demands in our own lives, our needs, Scripture reorients us toward others. It does it with all of the one another commands of Scripture. It's like, you know, we talk about overflowing grace, overflowing one another's is what Scripture gives. Philippians 2, 3, count others more significant than yourselves. Romans 12, 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. It goes on, live in harmony with one another. Let us not pass judgment on one another. Therefore, welcome one another. Have the same care for one another. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Through love, serve one another. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Encourage one another. Build one another up. And on and on and on and on. I'll give you a pass on greet one another with a holy kiss. But the rest of these stand... Is it our orientation towards others that motivates us to get out to community group on a Tuesday night? Jump into one of the Bible studies. Serve alongside others on a ministry team. And then when we're there, when we arrive, when we show up, are we, are we caring for one another? Do you see God at work in others and give Thanks to God. When I, when I walk in to church on a Sunday morning, I, I just find myself overwhelmed as I, as I pass person after person and greet everybody. I just find myself filled with gratefulness for what each person is doing. I, I, I mean, it, it is like, like an anthill around here with so much that has to be done, whether it's communion prep or the, or the, the ushers or the greeters out. You know, just every, everyone is moving around doing this. And I just, I walk through and I begin to say, there's grace at work, there's grace at work. I'm so glad that, that this person is there. Do we see God at work in others and give thanks to God for it? When we, when we orient toward others with affection, we're gonna see God's work in them. That's the fourth aspect. Gratitude for the church identifies spiritual growth. Gratitude for the church identifies spiritual growth. What should we be thankful for? Paul sets the example of giving thanks for the spiritual growth that he sees in the church. He thanks God for their faith, which is growing abundantly. For their love for one another, which is increasing and for their steadfastness or their, their patience, which is enduring through trials. Now, faith and love, they correspond with the greatest commandment. This is spiritual growth in love for God. That's faith and love for others. 
Where, does, where do faith and love come from? These are gospel-initiated fruits. Faith and love come from the gospel. They are the results of the people of God who have received the message of Christ. Ephesians 1, 13 to 15 shows this clearly. It connects our faith and our love to the gospel when it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. That's faith. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession for it. That's that future grace that we were talking about last night. To the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love toward all the saints. They received the gospel of salvation, and now their faith is born, and their love toward the saints is born. Romans 10, 17 It says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That is the gospel. That is the message of Christ crucified, died, risen from the grave. That that is the gospel. And what was our condition before the gospel came to us? Well, Paul describes unbelievers right here in 2 Thessalonians 1, in the same sentence. These verses that we're reading, 3 and 4, it's actually verses 3 to 10. It's one continuous sentence from Paul, this big, long, run-on sentence. And in verse 8, look down to verse 8, because this includes us in our fallen condition, verse 8, when it says that we were among those who did not Know God and did not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. We were destined to suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. That was us. Spiritually dead. Dead things don't grow abundantly. But God in his indescribable love, his indescribable mercy sent his own son to become a human being, to be fully God, to be fully man, to live a life that was in obedience to the gospel when I was not obeying the gospel. And then he experienced that suffering of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord in my place, away from the presence of the Lord in your place, his blood shed. Instead of ours, my sin on him, the wrath of God that I deserved on him, he died. He was buried. He rose again, taking up his own life on that third day so that we might be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life. This is the word of Christ, the gospel of our salvation. This is the birthplace of the faith and love that we see in the church And the power of the gospel makes our living faith grow abundantly. And the power of Christ in us makes our love for one another increase. And when we see that growth and that increase in other people, we ought to be giving thanks to God, our wondrous Lord. Gratitude to God for the spiritual growth that we see in others should overflow in us. Brian Chappell says it this way, the heart that knows grace 
longs to thank God for his mercy. (laughs) The heart that knows grace longs to thank God for his mercy. Again, it is not an imposed pattern, even though it's our duty. It is not an imposed pattern. It is the reflex response of the heart that has grasped the gospel. If we've truly grasped the gospel or been grasped by the gospel, our reflex response is gratitude. You know what he means by reflex? It's, it's automatic, like when the doctor takes that little rubber hammer in and hits your knee and your knee leg twitches. It's so conditioned, it's almost involuntary. Our gratitude to God, when we see the gospel in other people's lives, should be automatic. When we see those gospel-initiated spiritual growth in others, It reminds me of what Paul says in Acts 20. Paul's talking to the elders and he tells them to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Do you realize what that says about the person who's sitting next to you in church? Sitting next to you right now. Sitting next to you in your small group. Living at home your roommate, your spouse, they are bought with God's own blood. Each person you see in church, a trophy of grace. And that should result in a reflex response of overflowing gratitude to God. And I have to say, since Paul was speaking to the elders there in Acts 20, it is so easy for us as your pastors to relate to Paul on this. We are simply amazed. We are staggered and full of thanksgiving for the grace of God that we see in your lives, for the way faith grows abundantly in you, for your love for one another and how it has it just increases to see you receive God's word with joy, to see you praying for one another, bearing burdens with one another, opening up your lives to each other. We thank God for you. We thank God for you. We see your faith is growing abundantly. I've been thinking often about our dear friends who have recently gone to be with the Lord and how they were cared for even to their last day. I was thanking God for Warren and Betsy, seeing them stand. The only people they lost out to was the Campbells, I think, last night. (laughs) But just how Warren and Betsy cared for Deb's Warline, had her in their house, They were also caring for Nancy Cordery at the same time. Hard losses, long-term friendships. Not easy, close together. Things that we need to endure in grace. That's what it looks like to, to see love for one another growing abundantly. When we see God's grace at work in individuals in the church, we need to recognize It has an effect. It has a benefit on the whole church. Our church is made stronger as a whole as Warren and Betsy increase in their love for others. And so we thank God for spiritual growth in their lives. John Calvin says, The welfare of our brother ought to be so dear to us 
that we are to reckon among our own benefits everything that's been conferred on them. Nay, more, if we consider the nature and the sacredness of the unity of God of Christ's body. So if we're all one body connected, such a mutual fellowship will have place among us that we should reckon the benefits conferred upon an individual member as gain to the whole church. If one person increases in love for others, we all are strengthened. If one person's faith grows abundantly, the whole church is strengthened. Our gratitude for spiritual growth in the individual is also an acknowledgement that the whole church is benefiting. We look around the room when we see these college students, men and women, participating here in this leadership because they're in discipleship groups or they're part of the the youth A team or they're leading Bible studies, serving on ministry teams and service teams. They're doing it out of the growing love for others. We should give thanks to God, not just for the growth in their lives, but because the whole church is being blessed, right? First Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We've heard, right, God is good and he does good, right? We pray, I pray that many nights for, at our dinner time prayer. Lord, you are good and you do good. Rob said it last night. Jarrett said it last night. It's, it's Psalm 119, 68. You are good and you do good. Simple verse to memorize. Remember that reference and that phrase, it'll serve you well. Why? Because it directly relates to our gratitude for the church. How? Our gratitude for the church identifies spiritual growth. So listen, our ability to see spiritual growth in others will be dependent on our belief that God is good and does good. Last night, Jared said we need to remember and we should daily study the attributes of God. His goodness is an attribute of God. God is good. God does good. That is an attribute of God and our experience of God. And when we believe this, we're filled with faith to look for reasons to be grateful. When we find those grace-empowered reasons, we will reflect them back to God in gratitude. Take note as well that the spiritual growth that Paul is pointing out is actually an answer to his own prayers. The spiritual growth that Paul sees here is an answer to his own prayers. In the first book of Thessalonians, chapter 3, 10 to 12, Paul writes, as we pray most earnestly day and night, so he's praying for them day and night, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. He's praying for them day and night for what's lacking in their faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Their faith that's growing abundantly, their love for one another that's increasing, it's an answer to Paul's own prayers in the first letter. So brothers and sisters, keep praying. Keep calling out to God. Keep lifting up your brothers and sisters in the church and consider how you're praying for one another. It's important to pray circumstantially, about our circumstances, both physical and circumstantial needs that people have, a job, help in a marriage, healing. Paul prays that way. He does it in Colossians 4.3 when he says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for us for the word to declare the mystery of Christ for which I'm in prison. His, his prayer is, let me find ways to share the gospel, let God open doors. 
In 2 Corinthians 12, 7 to 8, he says, to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. But he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. We, we should and need to pray for circumstantial things. But it's also important that we pray for spiritual growth. That's what Paul prays for the Thessalonians. He prays it in Philippians 1, 9 to 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Pray for spiritual growth in the lives of others in the church. And then you ought to give thanks to God for your brothers when you see them growing in faith and love and steadfastness. The person who's able to see grace in people's lives will always have a reason to be grateful and give thanks to God in every circumstance. And that leads us to the fifth point, that gratitude for the church embraces trials. Gratitude for the church embraces trials. What are the circumstances in which this type of spiritual growth happens? In verse 4, Paul says, He boasts about their steadfastness and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. They are facing difficulty. Persecution for the gospel and afflictions that require them to endure, to remain steadfast, to be patient, to trust God. This steadfastness is another fruit of the gospel for which we should give thanks. But it's a fruit of godliness that is fostered in trial. And that's a, that's a harder idea for us to process. I mean, there are everyday trials, like, like things breaking, right? Everything breaking, things just falling apart around you when you have no skills at all of any kind to either prevent them from breaking or to repair them after they break so things just break and then they stay in a hopeless state of brokenness. Just <laughs> hypothetically speaking, we can all relate to that. There are trials like unexpected bills or relational strife in our marriages, in our extended family, with our kids, with roommates. There are persecutions where we are treated unfairly, perhaps related to our faith or just unexplained. And there are intense afflictions, job loss, long-term illness, children needing to be hospitalized, abuse, divorce, the death of a loved one. Things we wouldn't order from the menu, huh? Things we wouldn't choose, but sent to us for a purpose. Leon Morris speaks to these things when he says, the New Testament does not look on suffering in quite the same way as most modern people. To us, suffering is an evil in itself, something to be avoided at all costs. Now, while the New Testament does not gloss over this aspect of suffering, it does not lose sight either of the fact that in the good providence of God, God is good and he does good, suffering is often the means for working out God's eternal purpose. 
It develops in the sufferer qualities of character. It teaches valuable lessons. Suffering is not thought of as something that may possibly be avoided by the Christian. For believers, it is inevitable. They are appointed to it. They must live out their lives and develop their Christian character in a world that is dominated by non-Christian ideas. Their faith is accordingly not a fragile thing to be kept in a kind of spiritual cotton wool insulated from all shocks. It is robust. It is to be manifested in the fires of trouble and in the furnace of affliction. Furthermore, not only is it to be manifested there, but in part, at any rate, it is to be fashioned in such places. Spiritual growth is fashioned in the furnace of affliction. Just, just hearing Norina stand up here, hearing her trials over the last few years, and here she is testifying, giving thanks to God for the grace in others. Spiritual growth is fashioned in the furnace of affliction. It is there that steadfastness grows. And we should be making the connections of what Paul means here when he is speaking of their faith and their love and their steadfastness. That steadfastness points to the hope, the faith and love and hope of 1 Corinthians 13. Romans 5, 3 to 5 maps out the root from suffering through steadfastness to hope. It says not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. That's the steadfastness. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. This is the hope that sustains us in the darkest places Brothers and sisters, are you being tested in the furnace? Is God fashioning your faith and love as you're facing afflictions? You're not on your own. God's love will sustain you. And church, we want to be on the hunt for reasons to be thankful. When you see brothers and sisters in trials and you see their faith and that it's not some cotton protected faith that's insulated, it is robust. A robust faith tested in the furnace, standing firm. Let us pray for them, for their circumstances, for their spiritual growth. Let us give thanks to God for the fruit of faith and love and steadfastness and look forward to the day when Christ will return and make everything right and wipe every tear and lead us in everlasting joy in his presence forever. And then finally, gratitude for the church strengthens the church. Gratitude for the church strengthens the church. What's the effect of our gratitude for the church? Paul says that when he sees these things in the Thessalonians and he boasts about them to the other churches. He testifies to the grace that they're experiencing. He gives thanks for their abounding faith, their increasing love. And this is an encouragement to the other churches. To hear about God's grace at work. 
Matthew Henry says, the apostle never flattered his friends, but he took pleasure in commending them and speaking well of them to the glory of God and for the excitement and the encouragement of others. We don't bring people up here to honor them just so they feel good about themselves. We're testifying to God's increasing their faith, growing them in their love so that you can be excited, so that you can be encouraged. We're not looking to flatter. We're looking to bring glory to God and to strengthen one another by identifying and celebrating God's grace at work in the lives of the people of the church. We take pleasure in commending and speaking well of others, celebrating them as they abundantly grow in faith, as they increase in love. I've recently been talking about this and expressing my gratitude uh, during the production team meetings that we have on Sunday morning. For those of you who have ever heard a call of worship here at the church, you may also have noticed that right before the service starts, uh, there's a group of people gathered at the front, our, our production team. And that's that's just a few minutes before the service starts, all the teams involved with running the service. So the sound team, the lighting, the iMag, lyrics, ushers, anybody that has a role in the service, we meet together up front, we run through the details of the service, we pray together, and there's several reasons that I'm thankful for that. One is just to see all of the gifts at work. I mean, there is a lot that goes on And God has given technical gifts and problem-solving gifts and the gift to remain calm under pressure to so many people. (laughs) And they're using those gifts so that everybody else can just sit quietly in their seats and just enjoy and receive and engage God almost without any distraction. I'm just thanking God for all of those gifts that he's given. And I'm grateful for the heart to serve that is demonstrated the folks that are in that group and that morning, the folks that are on those teams, they serve out of this abounding faith in Christ and out of their increasing love for others. But I'm also grateful because the people represented there are increasingly those of the next generation. I leaned over to Andy the other day. I, I've said this to, to several people, but I leaned over to Andy the other day at the meeting and I just said like, Look at the average age of the people running our service. It's all like 35 and under. The next generation taking up responsibility for the church, taking up the mantle, wanting to make a way for others to hear the word of God clearly, to sing praises to God, to receive from God. Brothers and sisters, are we on the hunt? Are we on the hunt? Do we feel obligated to find reasons to give thanks to God and also to delight in our brothers and sisters in the church? Or do we struggle? Do we find difficulty commending others or even identifying God's grace at work in them? Let us stay close to the gospel. May it remind us and refresh us and motivate us to look for those reasons, to be grateful to God, to express that gratitude to others. Because when we purpose to be grateful for the church, we will always find God-exalting, gospel-initiated, grace-empowered reasons to give thanks. Amen.